Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Tamara Thomas, editor-in-chief of UrbanHealthToday.com, part of the DocWire family of medical news sites. And I want to thank you for tuning in to Urban Health Weekly. Our goal each week is to keep you informed of the latest in health and medical news right from today's headlines. It's time to empower yourself with open conversations about your medical care with news that matters to you. So are you ready? Let's get started. <laughs> Hi, I'm Tamara Thomas and welcome to Urban Health Weekly, where we talk about medical news and health topics that matters to you. I'm here with Jackie and Louis. How are you guys? Very good. How are you guys doing? I'm not so great, but how are you, Lou? I'm doing fantastic. Well, I'm glad you guys are doing so good. You know, we've just had nothing but bad news on top of bad news on top of bad news. And um, well, first of all, I had the opportunity to talk with chiropractor Dr. Sherry McAllister about non-prescribing pro- providers like herself and how lack of access to them could lead to opioid addiction. And that'll be later in the show. But first, I wanted to share some of this bad news from across the country. Now, let me just run down the list of like the bad news that we have. We still have a baby formula shortage, even though Abbott is back in production. Organic strawberries are giving kids hepatitis B. Uh, There's an uptick in uterine cancer. Uh, There's like a shooting every other day. Um, We got the monkeypox thing going on. So... You know, I'm glad you guys are like in an awesome mood. I just feel like it's hard to be in like a good mood with like so much bad stuff going on. And it just seems nonstop every day. But because you're informed about the stuff that's going on as opposed to like- I guess, you know, there is something to the ignorance being bliss, maybe. Yeah, I think so. But you guys are informed and you're still in in good mood. So maybe maybe I'm doing something. Uh, If I think too hard about it, I am not in as much of a good mood. Well, when you put it all together, it's just, you know, if you take them one by one, I guess it's like- Yes, all together, it, it makes me a little anxious. Yeah, you know? So anyway, let's let's hop into it. So health officials are scrambling to raise monkeypox awareness ahead of Pride Month. Um, public health authorities are scrambling to raise awareness of the growing monkeypox outbreak in advance of um, Pride Month celebrations, which are underway. In doing so, they are trying to strike a delicate balance, getting out the message that monkeypox may currently be a risk to men who have sex with men without stigmatizing the community by linking them to a scary sounding virus that can infect anyone in certain circumstances. The message is similar for all communities, which is vigilance if you have a rash that is different or that could be monkeypox. Dimitri Daskalakis, director of the Vision of HIV AIDS Prevention at the CDC told journalists, if you come back from the event and have a rash, it's important to get medical attention and just be aware that this is potentially circulating in some communities. All right, you guys, what do you think? Well, it's, uh, you know, 
any anytime there's a little sex or a little romance or it's just all close contact so um yeah everybody's got to be careful use use all your precautions wash your hands etc cetera, etc cetera. um uh if you've had smallpox vaccine do you have any kind of protection for monkeypox is you know, they're not really clear on if the smallpox, they are giving um, healthcare professionals the smallpox vaccine um, to protect them from the monkeypox. And it still remains to be seen if that's going to protect, protect them. I don't know. Right. But it's curable that, too. Um, sorry? It's curable monkeypox. It's treatable. Yeah. It's, so it, yeah, it's don't a, waste your time. Don't, don't, uh, don't wait. Go ahead and get that looked at. Yeah, well, what they're saying is they, they, they think that it's been circulating um, a, a lot longer than we thought, because what they're thinking is that doctors may have dismissed it as something else and not realizing that it may have been monkeypox. Ah, that makes because sense. Because if it shows up in the genital area, um, mm. yeah, then they're, thinking, they're saying they're automatically saying, well, it's some sort of STD. Right. They're not saying they're not think they're not even thinking about monkey yeah. Pox. Who thinks about monkeypox until it's become like, uh, you know, until you got the lesions breaking out, yeah, you know, you on your skin. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. They're not really. They're assuming that it was not monkeypox. Now they're looking at the monkeypox and they're yeah. saying, oh, it's monkeypox, but it might have been monkeypox all along, and they just didn't realize it was monkeypox. Right. Hey, did you get the smallpox vaccine, by the way, when you were a kid, or did you miss that window of uh, because you're younger? Yeah, I don't recall. I did. I did. I don't. I got it because the cutoff was like I got it as an infant when I was like one, uh, but they did it on my shoulder. Uh, yeah. But you had it, though, right? So yeah, you had it. That. They stopped in the seventies, like early seventy. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, yeah. So I missed that altogether. Yeah, I got I it in the early sixties. Oh, okay. And I still have the scar. Yeah. So you have the scar on the shoulder. I, you have it on your arm, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't have it because they. I guess I was too skinny at the time, and they wanted to hide it in girls, and so they put it like on my back. So mm -hmm. I people have thought I was, you know, younger than I am. Ha When you go to the doctor, they would. They would have you roll up your your sleeve or whatever to show the, the shit. You know, they weren't vaccine right. cards and records weren't that day, that bad. So right. And you know, sometimes we, I didn't know what I had and didn't have because I traveled a lot as a kid. Which ones ah. I didn't get? So I just show them this, and they say, "Okay, you got that one." Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay. So I'm going to give you my thoughts on monkeypox. Uh, yes. As long as I'm blabbing. Yes, please. And, and they start out with something a little bizarre. Like when I first heard about monkeypox, I honestly thought that the, this is the media again. You know, it must be a slow news cycle this week. <laughs> you rolled your eyes. No longer the elections or whatever. The elections are a couple of months away. <laughs> so let's let's uh, let's start a new pandemic and. Let's get a good one where it could be sexually transmitted. It has, um, you know, uh, gay people are involved. So let's let's throw them. Let's throw somebody that gets it more than other people. Let's make a, a whole a whole blue about it. That lasted for about a week. Then all of a sudden, credible doctors and when I'm saying credible, at first it was like you know eyewitness news, but then when you know the scientific media started saying, no, hey, this is real. This is growing. I said, oh, wait a minute. This could be an epidemic. And the only thing that still kind of bothers me a little bit about this is 
this is such an easy thing to diagnose. I mean, you, you know, when you have it, it's like having, you know, an arrow, right? Stuck in the middle of your forehead. How is it that people are giving it to other people? Is this easier to transmit than we think? Are we naturally? Ah. What are the windows? All these things we like, like, as you correctly said, Jackie, at the beginning, you know, they think the smallpox vaccine will protect you, but they don't know. There's a lot of they don't knows about right. this right now. And I think that, you know, my hope is that it goes away and we don't even talk about it because the cases just die out. That's what I'm hoping. Right. But if we talk about it again, I think, A, we're going to have a lot more information and B, it's going to be a lot more worrisome than it is right now. So you think the monkeypox is a sexy name? Well, it's, you know... <laughs> I, I, it, I'm not calling it sexy. I'm just saying it has it has a name, you know, like the dinosaur flu or something. I, I don't know. It, it sounds... It's it ear-catching. Oh, it's ear-catching. Oh, yeah, it's got a okay. catchy phrase. or it, It's already got a cool name, you know. It's, not that I didn't hear everything else you said. Just that one particular part, I was just like, huh? <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I'm glad you said that because I'm going to share my take on this which is a little bit different from what um, you're both saying. And I'm incredibly frustrated by the CDC. I feel like they're not sounding the alarm enough on this outbreak. And let's be clear, it is an outbreak. Okay. Um, and I really think it's for the same reason that no one cared about AIDS back in the day until it started. Oh. Uh, you know, I think you guys know where I'm going with this. Yeah. So CDC basically said, nothing to worry about. This won't spread. It's not going anywhere. And I just really believe that they they think that this it's just within the gay community. It's another gay plague. And that's that. There, I said it. But that's that's my feeling on this. My feeling is that, that they're just not taking this seriously enough because it hasn't hit the burbs. This is the same thing that they did with the crack epidemic. Uh, Anything that doesn't hit suburbia, it's not a real problem. Until I'm feeling like it's real a Americans. quote unquote when fringe it's in group. Subgroups, then yeah. it's it's then it's it's not a problem. But then all of a sudden, when it gets into like the mainstream, then it's a big problem. You know, um, coronavirus. They didn't think that coronavirus was a big problem until it hit and crippled this nation. So. I'm incredibly frustrated that we haven't learned lessons from the last pandemic that we're still in. That's that's pissing me off. It's it, it's incredibly frustrating the 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 level of ignorance that these people are trafficking in, and I just can't take it. That's what I that's how I feel about this. Mm -hmm. it, it's just they've got to stop and they've got to to um, treat this with, with more severity. Because this is going to hit the nation, and then what are they going to do? They can't just, you know, label this another like gay thing just because that's where they're seeing it. You know, this bothers me, and this should bother you guys too. Uh, do you think it's getting transmitted because it's sexually transmitted, and or can be? Well, we just don't know enough about it. That happens to be where they're catching it. But, but also, like if, that if that's you have a definitive the place, it is. If you have a definitive lesion and you're, you know, getting it on in the dark, you're not going to see, you know, you're not going to see that particular lesion. Maybe that's why, because you're, you know, Lou is saying it's a glaring, you know, sign. Um, 
I know it's but maybe it's not because I don't think the incubation period. Ah. Where you're taking, you yeah, maybe there's some eating. sort of viral shedding or whatever. Right. By yeah, the time you right by the time you have the lesions, obviously no one's going to. It's too late now, right? But that that's the thing. It's like when you're in that incubation period and you just don't know. Maybe you know you feel like oh I'm a little tired I'm under the weather I'm gonna have like a I'm gonna have like a little one of those little energy shots or whatever oh I need some right. more coffee I mean I don't know they don't know enough about this and that's bothering me that they're not really taking this seriously like if you look for a list of symptoms the symptoms are like so non-specific except for the lesions and um, you know you see pictures of people's hands with the lesions and all that. oh yeah those pictures are really dramatic but. But how long did it take for us? How to long before they popped up? How long, for example, did it take for them to compile a comprehensive list of all those symptoms of COVID? Oh. Right? Remember back in the day uh, when, when you know, early aughts of the disease, when they didn't want to include um, loss of smell and loss of taste, and the uh. ENT community had to fight and say, no, this is, and it's taking us out because people are coming in with their losing their ability to smell and their ability to taste, and it's making us sick, you have to add this to the list. And they fought them and fought them to finally get that added, right? And this is the same thing. Who's fighting now to say, you've got to add these, these um, symptoms to the list? There's no one doing that because it's just in the MSM community right now. That's all they know about it. And so now they want to tiptoe because they don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. But at the same time, they're not really doing enough to learn more about the disease. And partly, I guess, is because it's so damn infectious. Like you could literally get it from bed sheets and stuff like that. But still, you know, in the name of science, for heaven's sakes, we have to know more. Can you get it on a train? If you, if you, you've ridden a, the New York City transit. If you yeah. stand shoulder to shoulder with somebody, can they give you monkeypox? These are the kinds of things we need to know. If somebody told, uh, held on to that pole. After um, you did. I yeah. remember my sister, she got. Uh, oh, I remember that. She Yeah, she licked her finger. She was eating a bagel on the, I don't know why she was eating in public, but she licked her fingers. She had butter on her finger. She licked her finger after she um, got butter on her finger. She was holding on to the pole in the, and then afterwards she was like, oh, what did I do? And then she ended up getting a horrible throat infection, a strep throat. She got strep throat from the subway. Uh -huh. Don't tell me that you're scrambling to raise awareness about monkeypox. No, you're not. Not when you put out a, a statement two weeks ago saying that there's nothing to worry about. And then now you come back and you're, you're trying to figure out how to talk to a community about it. You should be talking to the whole nation about it, not just the community. That's ridiculous. Have you learned nothing? So that's all right. I'm off my soapbox. I, I, that's, uh, you know, it's just been an incredibly frustrating experience to watch the coverage of this because we really don't know anything. You just feel like it's history repeating all over again. It's just a little history, bit of history repeating itself like that song. It's all just a little bit of history repeating. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing because I'm upset. But um, yes, yes, it is. And I, I, yeah, I just wish we knew more. And we don't because they're treating this like this is an isolated thing. And we've seen this happen so many times before. That's all. Okay. Speaking of. Well, why don't we take a break uh, before our next. Uh... You mean you don't want to talk about the syphilis epidemic? <laughs> no, absolutely don't. Okay. We'll be right back. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'll be back with, we'll be back with more bad news after this. <laughs>
And we're back. And we were just regaling you with some bad news. And I've got some more bad news. <laughs> the syphilis surge is now a public health emergency, or at least should be viewed as a public health emergency. While the trajectory, by the way, I thought this was a disease that was like on the downslope, but- we'll, we'll, It was for a while, wasn't it? Yeah, it was for a while. While the trajectory of the pandemic remains uncertain, there is no shortage of other health topics that need urgent attention. Arguably, one of the next public health emergencies will be responding to the increase in STIs. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, STI rates were on the rise. As health systems returned to pre-pandemic delivery of services, the ongoing upward trajectory of STIs is coming into focus. Most alarming is the resurgence of syphilis, known as the great imitator, for the challenges it presents to clinical diagnosis. The latest rates suggest that far from the plans to eliminate syphilis in the 1990s and the 2000s, the disease has once again emerged as a public health threat. According to recent release, recently released CDC data, cases of syphilis increased 52%. That's from huge. 2000, from 2016 to 2020, and congenital syphilis cases are up by 235%. Wow. Preliminary data for 2021 show yet another increase in congenital syphilis, considered a sentinel event in the healthcare system. This growing infectious disease threat deserves urgent attention. Untreated syphilis has severe long-term health consequences and contributes to HIV transmission. Congenital syphilis leads to greater rates of stillbirth, premature birth, and infant death. Infants who survive can have lifelong disabilities from the infection. Let me just say this, C. Everett Coop. You remember C. Everett Coop? Yeah, I remember him. He was the Surgeon General, I think, under President Clinton. He scandalized America when he deemed to advise that people use condoms. Um, I thought he was. I, I thought he was my hero when he said that. Ah. Um, but somehow condoms have just fallen out of favor, and I don't know when or why or how. All I know is this hookup culture is driving these spikes in infections. Let's just call it what it is. Oh, can we agree that it's the hookup culture? Is it the hookup culture? I oh, want to say something. If you get, well, okay, yes, I acknowledge that. But um, if you go to the doctor, because, you know, I'm the most nervous person in the world, so I always would go and get tested for everything all the right. time. And so I would ask, you know, they didn't, they didn't have a syphilis test. You had to ask separately for that. That wasn't a standard panel. That really, oh, wow. no, it wasn't. So you, because a lot of places they would just test for everything, but they wouldn't necessarily give you blood work. And then if you're going to get your regular um, complete blood count, blah, 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 you had to go get a separate test for syphilis. So it wasn't convenient. Is that and, if you went to your prime, is that, is that if you went to your private uh, doctor or your private uh, women's health doctor, as opposed to like, if you went to like, Planned Parenthood or something because the Planned Parenthood I recall did like a they did like a really comprehensive it was almost embarrassing did they do blood work because um, they did I don't remember work, them doing culture. blood work they did every culture known to man your throat your everything from the ruta to the tuta really yeah because I remember having to go separately for that and yeah, okay. um and not only that that wasn't necessarily covered right away like you had to 
a lot of places that had women's health didn't necessarily do that automatically, even if they tested for other things, because other things were a swab, you know? And so I I like the idea that they could bundle that (laughs) test and make it just like really a standard thing. It, you know, they had to code it separately um, if you wanted like, a syphilis test it had to be and then you had to be like a certain group right like you had to be like a high-risk group right they would ask you too many questions as opposed to just be like yeah just automatically test you know like you're already like a little mortified okay so now you're you're getting the point uh, you know, maybe that's because it was New Jersey. I don't know, but back, you know, in, like, back in the day. For, by the way, see Everett Cook was right in 1982 to 1989. Oh, thank you, you. thank you. Uh, but um, uh, one of the um, one of the things, that, and he was a pioneer in eradicating uh, a lot of venereal diseases, stuff like that. Uh, but one of the uh, things about the syphilis test is that it's very, very, very painful. Uh, I know it's okay. Uh, then how do you know that it's painful? People that I know took it. They didn't like it. They had to put a swab. And this is back in the day, back in the Middle Ages when I was, you know. They put a, they put a swab down your urethra? You got it. And uh, what? I didn't want to say it because it just hurts to say it. <laughs> and at the end of the day, it was like you would just decline it unless you had uh, unless you had some sort of symptom. And they used to give you like these whole things. Like syphilis was called the drip you, right. you, you either have the drip or the clap. You, right. you, you know, every, every, every. Uh, I thought gonorrhea was the drip. The <laughs> Look, I had neither. So one was the drip and one was the clap. And and, uh-huh. and, and either they were both support, supposedly bad or, wow. or whatever. And, and thank God I never had a test. But, but, but um, are, didn't they used to do blood work though? Like when people get married, they had to get blood work. They right. had to pass their test. But that I don't know that that's necessarily. No, the- I don't think they do that anymore. I think it's like yeah, more power to you. I think it just became expensive, or maybe just people objected to it. Um, I don't know. Yeah, because if you had syphilis that and, and you didn't know it and, and you didn't treat it, that was a death sentence. Right. And, because eventually you you it would get to your horrible brain. goes latent. It's terrible. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So yeah. I thought it was tested by blood. I didn't know you had to go through this whole. Well, I, oh, I'm they sure swabbed they... you for the, they swabbed, well, when, in my experience, they swabbed you for the gods and they swabbed you for everything. But, you know, I'm, I'm a little younger than you guys. So maybe by the time. Maybe they were a little more. Yeah. But, you know, I went to, to, to Planned Parenthood and places like Planned Parenthood because that was all I could afford back in the day. Right. And I wanted to stay on top of my, um, I mean, I was also, I stayed double bagging, but just, <laughs> just to be, that means wearing two condoms for yeah. those of you who don't know what that means. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, but I still wanted to, because I was just so concerned, like I didn't want to have something that would destroy my reproduction or. Right just take me out of the game or whatever. But in, so in any event, I would go to, and I would get my care and they would do like a full panel of everything, blood, swab. It was well, really they did blood work too. Okay, yeah. that's good. It was very humiliating, but they did it. And, you know, uh, I believe one of the tests they did, I don't know, this was just so long ago. But in any event, um, I don't know. I think a lot of it is this this whole hookup culture now. I think you're right in that if you don't test for it, then you don't know about it. That's kind of what you guys are saying, right? Right, right. Yeah, but I hadn't thought of like the hookup culture. Uh, are people like 
not using condoms anymore. And also, I don't think so. It's, no guarantee. it's not part of the lexicon anymore. Like it's when I'm not a guarantee, I mean, you can still get like, you know, all kinds of things with condoms, but it makes a big difference to use a condom. It's definitely what you should be doing. You're saying you think people aren't even using them. Or I don't know that people are. And then, you know, like oral sex also is another way to, to give it and get it. And, you know, uh, that's rampant too. And P, I think people think that there's not as much risk in, by the way, did you know they created a, a, a panty, like a latex panty? It's like a thin, it's like a dental dam, but you wear it as a panty. I don't know how smart that is because um, I'm think my immediate thought was like yeast infection. <laughs> but I mean, like if you wore a, a latex panty, no matter how thin it is, you know, at some point in the night, you're going to be trapping a lot of moisture down there. Uh, I, I see the wisdom in it, but you when you put it on right, right then, well, that's the thing you right. hold on, but then that's the same thing for a dental dam. Like, you know, are you going to pull it out? Right. A lot or of a condom. That. Right. Well, that's the thing. And we need to get back to, to that. That's what I'm saying. You know, we need to, to make condom use and prophylactic use habitual and barrier and barrier use habitual. Like it used to be when I was coming up, when I was coming up in the nineties and the, and the two thousands, it was nothing. Everywhere you turned was condom, 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 protect yourself, protect yourself. You don't want to get a disease. Every song, every, you know, it was just ingrained. Yeah. You don't want to get prematurely pregnant, you know, use protection, protect, protect, protect. And now that's gone. I don't hear that anymore. I mean, I don't watch VH1. I don't watch MTV and those, except for my RuPaul's Drag Race. That's different. <laughs> But I don't watch those, sh but I don't think that they are talking about protecting yourself. I think it's just all this romanticized, like, you know, devil may care hooking up stuff. And I know I sound like a fuddy-duddy when I say it, but I don't care because I think it's extremely important. That's all. I just think it's extremely important. Here, here. Now, I talked to Dr. Sherry McAllister. She's a chiropractor and she's president of the Foundation for Chiropractic Progress. So let's take a listen. Hi, I'm Tamara Thomas, Editor-in-Chief of Urban Health Today, and I'm speaking with Dr. Sherry McAllister, a chiropractor, practicing chiropractor, and president of the Foundation for Chiropractic Progress. She's here to talk with us today about how disparities lead to opioid addiction. Thank you for being here, Dr. McAllister. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Let's get started. So tell us your story. First of all, can you tell our audience what a chiropractor is and does? Absolutely. My pleasure. A chiropractor is a physician, a healthcare physician who takes care of the spine and the well-being of the patient. So it is a um, fundamental review of the neuromusculoskeletal, which is the nerves, the muscles, and the bones to ensure that the patient is at optimum performance. So we prevent injury, but most importantly, we also care for the individual as a whole. And do you want to talk a little about um, how you made a difference in the community that you were in? Absolutely. Well, one of the things that we're starting to find is in chiropractic, it's on the rise. And that means that we're increasing our research, which was a fundamental 
piece to being able to showcase the objective findings that patients are going to need to have the trust in chiropractic care. The other portion of this is that patients are now looking for non-pharmacological options. They don't want to rely on a pill. They want a natural chiropractic um, approach to their well-being. And as we look through and we think about satisfaction rates, where patients are finding the greatest satisfaction, chiropractic actually is one of the top healthcare providers with satisfaction rates. And the last piece, I think, is the importance patient-centered approach, where the patient really comes to the doctor and has the time spent with that doctor to really discuss what their needs are. Not what the symptom is, but what really is going to change fundamentally how they deal with activities of daily living and how they're going to approach their overall wellness plan. Why or do you think there is a reticence on the part of physicians to refer because you're considered a non-prescribing provider or an NPP? Why do you think, or do you think there is a reticence on the part of physicians to refer patients to NPP such as yourself? I think this is an extremely important question that needs to be backed up with a couple of, of pieces of information before we jump right into the reticence. So yeah. I wanna look at a study that was done by the BMC, it's Complementary Alternative Medical Journal. And here's some of the facts that I think your listeners will be interested in. 81% of doctors of osteopathy and 87% of medical doctors actually reported that their patients had asked them for information for chiropractic. We're going to use that as our example because that, of course, is what I know as an expert in this field. Close to 75% of primary care medical physicians had patients who actually requested a referral to a chiropractor. Now, why is that important? And here's the kicker. 24% of doctors of osteopath and 29% of MDs had formally referred a patient to a chiropractor. So when you ask about reticence, is it in just that one study, does it not show reticence more on the referral than it does the actual consumer. And so the common reasons that patients want to get this kind of referral is for back and neck pain or kind of that unresolved chronic pain, mm-hmm. um, many of those musculoskeletal conditions and the vast majority of those. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. DOs and MDs preferred that their patients contact chiropractors on their own rather than actually making a physician initiated formal referral themselves. That's so interesting. That's, I, thought, I thought that your listeners would find that interesting because it's, it's showcasing where is the potential barrier for that right. patient to get non-pharmacological care. Because if it happens, in fact, for chiropractic, you know it's happening for physical therapy and acupuncture right. and cognitive behavioral therapies as well. And this is important because if the physician does not provide the referral, then the chances of insurance paying for it are very low to not at all. It can be in very many circumstances when a referral is absolutely necessary. Plus, it also starts to then degrade the patient's trust on non-farm options if the doctor is not in it. And we know the American College of Physicians noted that it should be, in fact, a non-farm option first. So if the doctor's not referring and the guidelines are saying non-farm options first for musculoskeletal issues, what's happening? And what is the reticence? And I think we can explore that a little bit further. Yeah, absolutely. I'm all ears. <laughs> so, so as we kind of go into this, this world of education, think back to how do you know about something? How do you actually find out about a new option? It's usually word of mouth or by the media. What's interesting is that the pharmaceutical companies for the major media is investing hundreds of millions of dollars into their commercials. It's very rare you can open a magazine without finding a pharmaceutical commercial involved in it, in hard copy, or even on the, the your regular channel of, of news watch. So they're explicit in educating the consumer, the pharmaceutical companies, that farm is an option. So they're getting all of their education and all of that word of mouth is, hey, I just listened to that commercial, I have some of those symptoms and wham, what are you thinking? I'm gonna go to my, my primary care and ask for that drug, right? The second part is, and this kind of was an, an interesting eye-opener for me too, is how often do the big farms actually uh, sponsor large medical conferences? And for your audience, this is not a hard one. If you, in fact, Google um, Big Farm and sponsorship of medical conferences, the first note that actually comes up is 41 out of 47 medical conferences were sponsored by Big Pharma. Let's go back to thinking about how are our primary care physician medical doctors and our doctors of osteopath being educated they're being educated by the sponsored conventions that are Big Farm. Big Farm is massive, hundreds of millions of dollars in media, consumer education, medical doctor education, they're in the medical schools. And the other portion of this is the lobbying. How do you get laws passed? So when there's reticence, is it education or is it just a drowning out of a small voice of non-pharmacological options? And that, I think, is something we all have to consider because it really does make a massive difference if the consumer is aware that there's a non-farm option out there. And then 
The other problem is that the opioids, they don't really get to the root of the problem. They only relieve the symptoms, which is the pain, but it doesn't get to the underlying cause of the pain. And so how do we get physicians? Is this, is this a patient-led experience where the patient has to insist to the physician? Because now we understand the impetus for why physicians are not referring patients the way they should be. Does this need to be led by patients then? I think one of the major ways we get our information out is through uh, pieces like this. And so I applaud you for even having this episode because how are the consumers going to find out if we know that the medical doctors are being turned towards pharmaceutical options through their funding of their continuing education? We know our magazines and our media are being um, filtered through the eyes of the farm. So I think that the options have to be out there and the way to get this information out is gonna be word of mouth. It's gonna be hard pressed, honest, factual information. And the things that make me step back and think what's really happening out there. The CDC proposed to remove this year the recommended dosage caps on opioids for acute and chronic pain. Now, this is a drastic change from 2016 guidelines, which actually recommended 90 MME, that's morphine milligram equivalents. And for your audience, that actual equivalency level was set to determine whether that cumulative dose mm -hmm. puts a patient at risk of overdose for a new patient. So one of the, the first things we got to look at is why would they take away the highest level of, of um, equivalency if they know that that was to determine whether a patient had a risk of overdose. And I think as we start to look at how medications are prescribed and how non-pharmacological care needs to be first, mm -hmm. it's still not first. And I think when we start looking at putting it first, we need to know, is it effective if we put non-farm first? And why are the patients not using it? So how aware would you say patients are currently uh, of NPPs such as chiropractic and acupuncture and- Well- I think they're increasing their awareness because the number of patients that are using chiropractic has definitely grown over the last 10 years for sure. And one of the pieces that I think has helped to ensure the growth is actually the patient satisfaction rate. And I'll tell you a little story that I think is quite um, fascinating is there is a um, university healthcare system in Florida where there's 1,500 healthcare professionals that work in that environment. One of those healthcare professionals is a chiropractor, and she works in the traumatic brain injury, Dr. Susan Welsh. And this particular institution won a Press Ganey Award. And one would ask, well, what's the significance of that? And that is, in fact, 100% patient satisfaction for what that healthcare provider actually touched the lives of. Wow. That was, that was the first time that institution ever won it. And it was won by a chiropractor. Now, 
That's amazing. That is, that is an amazing story in and of itself. And I very much agree with you. But listen to this. That's the first time in 35 years of that institution being open. They ever even knew there was an award and it gets better. This year alone, she won it again. So I think the stack, the statistics are startling. Two-time winner of a Press Ganey Award. That patient satisfaction rate is, is really impressive. And you know, there's a study that was done by the Palmer, uh, the 2016 Gallup Palmer Chiropractic Research, and it actually reported that 95% of recent chiropractic users rate chiropractic effective. So if you have this small but very important group study that showcases the importance of that um, usage, it's starting to, to, to slowly seed and bloom. 97% of past year chiropractic users are likely to see a chiropractor if they have neck or back pain, which means not only are they using it, they know that if they have an issue, where to go to get that non-farm um, option. And I think that's one of the pieces. In fact, Consumer Reports came out with how many people were suffering with back pain. And they, they gave a number of the survey that they put it was approximately 3,500 sufferers. And they asked um, them a, a question about chiropractic. And 83% of the respondents had seen a doctor of chiropractic and they found the treatment or the information they received from that doctor of chiropractic to be extremely helpful. So in consumer reports that wasn't friendly to us in the early 80s is now showcasing that the patients are voting with their feet. It means that our patients are starting to recognize one thing. An opiate is not an answer. It's a symptom reliever. When you think about quality of life and the ability to carry on with your quality of life, it's, it's scary. And um, I'll tell you one more story on this particular fact. I was in Maine and there was only one taxi driver available to take me to this very small little airport. Mm -hmm. her, she asked me why I was in town and I told her I'm educating the healthcare providers about the use of non-pharmacological care and that we're trying to reduce the usage of opiates. And she said, well, she said, that's all I have available to me. I take four Vicodin a day. She's 67 years old. She now has heart wow. issues. She has diabetes. She has all sorts of complications, particularly, and this is, this is not a joke, is constipation. Why does your body slow down when you take an opioid so that you can't release the toxins in your body? It's a thought process that you have to go through. And I said, are you ever offered any other options? And the answer was startling. The answer was no. How are we in 2022 having a taxi driver on an opiate, which, you know, decreases your ability to really pay attention. So the safety of America is at risk right? when you're using an opiate or worse. You know, I was watching the, uh, the Lincoln Lawyer last night on Netflix. Okay. And it was kind of an interesting thing because the, the driver that um, the Lincoln Lawyer had, she was a dancer and she ended up on the streets using heroin because when she was dancing, she hurt her back and she was an international performer. Mm -hmm. She was feared into losing her job. 
and she did everything she could do to save her job. So to continue to do her activities of daily living, she took that Vicodin and that Vicodin led to opioid abuse and that opioid abuse then led to her being on the streets. And that's a common story. And I thought it was interesting that the Netflix um, piece showcased it in exactly what's happening in today's world. Fear, fear of losing their job, fear of activities of daily living being compromised, and the fear of the pain if not properly being treated. I have to tell you, speaking of driving, um, about 20 years ago, I had hip pain actually that was because of my back. And the way I found out about chiropractic was I was talking to a girlfriend of mine and I was telling her about my hip and that I thought it was related to my back because I just started driving at the time. Um, and she recommended a chiropractor. And I have to tell you that it never occurred to me to take pain medication for it. Um, I can't conceive of a world where I don't have access to chiropractic care because there are a lot of us that don't believe in medicating a problem away, right? And there are a lot of us that if a doctor said, well, hey, this is your only option, we'd be like, no thanks. And so it was, a, to me, it, it just set my mind in a complete, like I can't conceive of taking a pill for something that can, you know, someone laying hands on me and adjusting me can fix. Like, I just can't, I can't wrap my mind around that. And my heart just goes out to people who are put on this path because it is a path that leads to addiction, unfortunately. So in your experience, do you think it would make a difference in the levels of addiction we're seeing if patients were encouraged to seek out uh, chiropractic and other NPP care prior to being prescribed opioids? Does that world exist? Absolutely. First, I am so grateful that your girlfriend stepped up and stepped in. She was brave, she was bold, and it's beautiful that you're not on that path because you easily could have been on another journey. And in fact, one hair school that we did from the Foundation for Chiropractic Progress actually pointed out that our Gen Zs are much more likely to want a non-pharmacological approach. And that is heartwarming because that's our future, but our future has to be made in objective reality. And so when I look at some of the studies that came out, for example, one is in the Journal of Spine in 2021, author Wade, and, and, and he actually pointed out that in the initiation of getting an adjustment, otherwise known as a spinal manipulation for treatment of, for example, what you had, low back pain or hip pain, the harmful medication-related incidents occurred 42 times more often in patients who were first wow. prescribed opioids as opposed to patients who, like you, received an adjustment, a chiropractic adjustment. So it's there. Um, another study that he did in pain medicine weighed in in 2020 actually showed that there was half the risk of filling an opioid prescription if, in fact, you saw a chiropractor first. And that really makes a difference. Um, last one I want to point out in pain medicine is through Kokorin. And the answer was chiropractic users had 64% 
lower odds of receiving an opioid prescription than non-users. Those are facts and facts have to be where we go. And our, our younger audience is looking for that natural approach. They want to have a fun-filled life that is not dependent on a pill. And I'm grateful that it is, it's word of mouth. Because like I said, we can't compete with the amount of money that's being put into the lobbying, put into the medical communities and the um, advertising that is being done. And when we talk about non-farm industries, we're kind of looking at that big picture of how do you find out that there's a non-farm option available to you because the barriers to getting it are massive. So what should people be saying to their, if they have a primary care doctor, what should people be saying to their pain management healthcare professionals? What do you say? So I, I come in, I see my primary care doctor or I see the doctor, the urgent care doctor, and I know I have back pain. I don't want opiates. What's the conversation I'm having with this provider to get them to refer me for chiropractic because my insurance requires a referral? This is one of the key moments in building trust with a patient. It is a guideline recommended by the CDC and the ACP, the American College of Physicians, that non-farm options are given first. So if a patient is handed an opioid prescription, then the patient should stop and say, my understanding is with low back pain that I should probably try a non-farm option first. I would like to see a chiropractor. I would like to see an acupuncturist. I would like to see massage therapy, a physical therapist, cognitive behavioral therapy. You have to be ready, willing, and able to ask these questions to your doctor. How can I get my non-farm option first? And be ready with your own choices because you have to vote with your feet. And one of the keys that we're seeing right now is our primary physicians, our primary care physicians are actually burning out. And you yes. know, the Surgeon General um, came out with a new advice addressing the urgent need to address healthcare workers burnout crisis across the country. So what's happening is they're seeing more patients than they can handle. They're being impacted acutely by the COVID-19 pandemic and the opioid epidemic. It has to be very trying. It has to be very, very difficult for these primary care physicians and trying to help patients in that industry, especially when we're coming to a primary care physician shortage. So we wanna change the conversation. And I'm grateful that the Surgeon General had actually sounded that alarm because I wanna know that my primary care physician is top notch. They're fully energized and wanting to help me with the best that they have. And we need to strengthen this community with the primary care physicians knowing they have options for referrals, the insurance company working because we know the cost variation, it, it, in, when you look at the changes in the cost, it's amazing. Um, there's, there's a Blue Shield, Blue Cross study that actually showcased the um, amount of money that could be saved if patients were going to non-pharmacological options first. 
and the um, the outstanding moments come when good people can do great things and they start to put the patient first. We take care of our primary care medical physicians so they're not burned out, that they have the right information about non-farm and they have an easy referral system in place. And I think when you start putting all of these pieces together, um, we're gonna help our aging adults, the Medicare patients that were given opioids. Can you imagine an elderly who's already naturally losing their balance yeah. given an opioid as a right. non-farm option first? That's and already tragic. has digestive issues, exactly. Absolutely. So we have a patient who is well-educated, thanks to your podcast, that will go in when they need primary care or they want to optimize their wellness and they go to a non-farm option first. They build a relationship with a non-farm option first before they need it because it's too late sometimes when you're in severe back pain, it's too late to try to figure out how to get into a non-farm option first. You wanna break the barriers down first before you end up having to be in an acute care setting where you're gonna need a non-farm option. So I would encourage your listeners, find a trusted physician that will not be prescribing an opioid first. And that's gonna be your non-farm options, your chiros, your acupuncturist, physical therapist. I open the door to anyone that wants to find help that doesn't involve a pill first before you need it. And chiropractic, for an example, is all about optimizing your wellness. Have a relationship with a physician like that first so that when you absolutely have an injury or an illness, then you can get in. You know, you understand what the deductible is, what the copay is, what the time is involved in getting there. These are all barriers to care. Break those barriers before an acute episode happens or a chronic issue begins first. If you're suffering right now, I would say pick up the phone, find a non-farm option or go to our f4cp.org slash find a doctor on our website. You can find someone to help you and you have to be educated and ready. And sometimes you'll be educating your primary medical physician to say, no, an opioid is not my, my choice. I wanna try something different. Can you help me get the referral that I want, the referral that I need to help my low back pain, my neck pain, or whatever it is that you're suffering with that you think that um, you'd like to try another option first? I think it's also about taking the decision out of the out of the HCP's hands, right? Because if you have um, a physician whose orthodoxy is prescribed and you don't have access, let's say, to a non-prescribing doctor or a doctor who doesn't believe in prescribing, then you've got to push back. You've got to have that conversation. You've got to stand strong and say, no, this is not what I want. I want to do this. I don't want... And be prepared to say, I don't want to become addicted to opiates. I don't want, this is not going to solve my problem long-term and have that conversation with the doctor and stand firm, right? Absolutely. In fact, you, you brought up something that I think your listeners will be surprised by. And it is a study of a managed care company, United Health Group. And it found that in the American Southeast, the back pain was treated with opioids at a far higher rate than in other regions. And when you dive deep into the findings, what did they actually find? Zip codes with, non, with no non-prescribing providers had the highest rate of opiates. 
that tells you something right there. The right. lowest average for um, income earners were given the highest opioids. The highest percentage of non-white population, which was very important. In the Southeast, they have less non-prescribing providers such as chiropractors and physical therapists. But here's the key. There was a piece in there that showed in Atlanta that 58% of zip code variations in opioid prescribing for back pain can be explained by income, race, and accessibility to those non-farm. And one of the things that I thought was fabulous is they actually found one area, one zip code that puzzled them on why they had the lowest number of opioids prescribed. So they dove deep into that zip code. And you know what they found? They found one, mm -hmm. They found one black community zip code with a drastically lower rate of opioids because there was a single black female chiropractor that said, no opioids first. We're gonna treat you. We're gonna ensure that you have the exercises, the stretches and the well-being to carry on in your activities of daily living before we go to an opiate. So I, I definitely don't wanna come across like non-prescriptive treatment is a silver bullet for the opioid crisis, but it's clear that it actually can reduce prescribing while still addressing the pain management needs of today's patients. What can more NPPs do? Do you think um, it, would it would be beneficial to have relationships with the HCPs in their area to raise awareness, to say, hey, I just want you to know I'm here. And you know, if your patients have these kinds of, of pain symptoms, they can come in and see me. Do you think that would be beneficial? I absolutely do. And the Mayo Clinic has a, has a study that integrative health in working with non-farm physicians is a critical component to helping a patient-centered approach. So we have to, as non-farm prescribers um, of uh, taking care of a patient, reach out to our healthcare providers. And um, one of the things I like to do is my LinkedIn page, Dr. Sherry McAllister, is put out articles that resonate with my healthcare community. And I'm in Silicon Valley. We have fabulous physicians across the board from orthopedic surgeons. I have patients that are orthopedic surgeons, um, nurse practitioners, and some very famous researchers who are really quite amazing in and of themselves at Stanford University. And I really enjoy the conversations that we have. But my, my goal is to educate them every time they're in the office, to collaborate with my community, whether it's a yoga instructor or a orthopedic surgeon, ask them for coffee, show them the research. I'm amazed when I go to national conferences, um, one last one is in Washington DC, that the research isn't getting out there. The, the healthcare providers aren't reading what is actually out there. And your audience now has heard some of the studies I just quoted, and many of the healthcare providers have no idea. And I once had a, a fabulous interaction with the president of one of the pain societies, and he asked me point blank and very seriously, he said, I don't understand why chiropractic is so high on patient satisfaction rate. And I said, well, doesn't understand. 
he because they're they're in the 60s and low 70s and the chiropractors are in the high 90s patient satisfaction rate comes with two things trust and we touch our patients it's not a prescription pad here's your pill and you can go away it's looking in the eyes of that patient who's suffering trying to figure out what is the best option for you and trying to ensure that their future is bright and that they can depend on themselves to be able to carry on and do what they love to do. And what does that mean? And healing a problem and not just covering the symptoms, that's a critical component to vitalism. And that's how we all thrive in today's society. Thank you so much, Dr. McAllister. This was, people need to hear this. And so I'm so glad you came and talked about this today because as I said, I can't imagine a life where NPPs and chiropractic and I mean, I've, I've done chiropractic adjustments. I've seen acupuncturists. I've had, uh, you know, PT and OT for a broken hand. So I can't imagine a world where your only choice is opioids. So this is important for people to know that this is not the, the, the only option out there. So thank you. Thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate this. Externally grateful to be able to share this information and very proud that you're willing to help your audience make better choices. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Urban Health Weekly today. I hope you'll join me and my friends next week so you can stay informed and inspired to take control of your health. See you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.